0: Ladies and gentlemen, got a broadcast set up for you guys. So sorry, it's been a little bit of a delay. We, we haven't done one of these shows in a little bit, but we are back with a big bang. I just wanted to mention and say thank you to this company. It's, they have a product called Cannabin, and I was able to to try it, and it blew my socks off. I, I liked it so much that I went and ordered more for my mom. So I reached out to them. And if you go to their site, telemannutrition.com, enter the code HXP and they'll give you 20% off. Also, just want to say thanks to everyone that sent emails to reach out, check in on the show. We've got a phenomenal guest set up for you tonight. The Human Experiences in Session. My name is Xavier Catana. My guest for tonight is Dr. Avi Loeb. Dr. Loeb is a world-renowned theoretical physicist. Dr. Loeb is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, Chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and Director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He also chairs the Advisory Committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and serves as the Science Theory Director for all initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, as well as Chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies. He's author of over four books and Over 700 scientific papers. In 2012, Time magazine selected Dr. Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. In June 2020, Dr. Loeb was sworn in as a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology at the White House. Wow, Dr. Loeb, I mean, what a list of credentials. Thank you so much, honored. Welcome to HXP.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your story is so intriguing, and we're we're talking about this book that you've written called Extraterrestrial, and in in which you're you're talking about you know life in other places. But before we get to that point, lay the foundation for us on in how science became important to you. How is that a mission for you?
1: Well, I I was born on a farm. I used to collect eggs every afternoon, and. Uh, I was primarily interested in philosophy when I was young and um, because it addresses the most fundamental questions. And I used to read the philosophy books um, uh, after driving the tractor to the hills of the village. And uh, when I got to the age of 18, I was born in Israel. I had to serve in the military. It's obligatory, but uh, they provided me with two options, either to be a regular soldier or uh, to pursue physics uh, because I was good at physics. And so circumstances led me uh, to physics. I finished, finished my PhD at age 24. And then uh, I was offered a, a postdoctoral fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And five years later, I was uh, offered a, a faculty position at Harvard. And then I was tenured uh, a few years later. And Uh, And and after that, I became the chair of the astronomy department for nine years, the longest serving chair. And at that point, it became clear to me that even though it was an arranged marriage by circumstances, I'm actually married to my true love because um, in astrophysics, we can address very important, deep philosophical questions using the scientific method. Mm -hmm. One of them is, uh, how did the universe start? Or another one is, uh, how did life start and uh, are we alone are we the smartest kid on the block which is hmm. pretty much uh, what i work on those are big questions
0: very big questions and yeah. probably one of the most important questions to you know our place in the universe are we alone uh, i mean this is how this is how you when you published your theory on oumuamua why don't you why don't you tell the people what oumuamua is and your your observations of how it became a peculiar object for anyone that may not know already about the story
1: yeah so the story starts in uh, october 2017 where uh, when the uh, panstars telescope in hawaii discovered uh, the first object that came from outside the solar system Uh, near Earth. And uh, we knew that it came from outside the solar system because it wasn't bound to the sun. It was moving too fast and therefore just, you know, was passing by. And um, at first, uh, astronomers thought, oh, it must be um, a rock of the type that we have seen in the solar system, either a comet or an asteroid. Uh, It was given the name Oumuamua because it means in the Hawaiian language, a scout, a messenger from far away. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as data was collected, it became clear that it's not anything we saw before because uh, as it was tumbling uh, every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10, and that meant a very extreme shape. Hmm. And the variation in the reflected light over time uh, could be explained best the 90% confidence uh, if the object is flat, uh, mm-hmm. pancake-like, not um, cigar-shaped or any other form. Uh, and then um, there was no cometary tail. We couldn't see any dust or gas around it. And uh, nevertheless, the object was um, pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force. So it couldn't have been the rocket effect from evaporating gases because we uh, had very tight limits on, on any gas around it. and. The only way I could explain that is if uh, the push is coming from the reflection of sunlight. Mm -hmm. And for that, the object had to be very thin. And nature doesn't make thin objects uh, that are sturdy. Uh, And so I suggested maybe it is um, artificial in origin. And in fact, in uh, September 2020, there was another object discovered by the same telescope, which uh, also exhibited... Uh, push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight without a cometary tail Mm -hmm. it was given the name uh, 2020 so and then uh, uh, several weeks after it it was discovered the astronomers realized that by extrapolating the trajectory back in time that actually it came from earth it's a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 Mm -hmm. as part of a lunar lander mission and We know why it was pushed away by reflecting sunlight, because it had very thin walls and uh, had a large surface area for its mass. And uh, we also know that it was uh, artificial in origin uh, because we produced it. Mm -hmm. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? I mean that's that's the billion dollar question, isn't it? And I mean, well, it could be it could be more than a billion dollars <laughs> because uh, just imagine a piece of technology that is f- coming from a, th- a civilization far more advanced than we are, and uh, it represents our future. Let's say it would take us a thousand years or a million years to develop that technology ourselves. You know that that could be worth a lot of money, more than a billion dollars. Sure,
0: sure, of course. I mean, how fast was Oumuamuva? Traveling,
1: uh, it was traveling uh, at a typical speed of, um, you know, stars relative to each other, which is, um, you know, tens of uh, uh, miles per second, not per hour, per second, huh. and that's uh, the typical speed that you find uh, stars moving moving relative to each other. But there was something really unusual about it because. Um, it was. Uh, it came from a very special frame of reference, which is called the local standard of rest, which is the frame that you get to when you average the motions of all the stars relative to each other, mm-hmm. sort of like the local parking lot. And, um, and uh, on, it was at rest in that frame. So only one in 500 stars is so much at rest as Oumuamua was in that frame and um, basically, it was just like a buoy uh, on the surface of the ocean, mm-hmm. and the sun, uh, like a giant ship, bumped into it. And it's uh, really unusual. So, it couldn't have originated from any of the nearby stars because they are moving relative to that frame. And the question is, why? Was it in that special frame? So that's another strange property of this object. And I discussed all of that in my book, Extraterrestrial.
0: Mm-hmm. What I mean, it's such an incredible discovery and mystery, this question and so intriguing. But I mean, when you when you announced when you came out with your paper, it it kind of went viral. People, it was became a sensation. Did you did you receive push? I mean, did you receive pushback from your your peers in in academia and and how was that? How was it received when you're saying you know, something so outside of the mainstream narrative? You know.
1: Yeah. So um, we didn't have any press release on this paper, but as you say, um, the media went viral. I mean, was extremely the public in general was uh, very excited about it. I should say that when my book came out uh, about seven months ago, um, also, you know, there was a huge response to the content of the book. And I had, uh, over a period of seven months, I had about 1,200 interviews. Mm. Um, Also, the days were back to back. um, And that was possible only as a result of the pandemic because I didn't have to travel Mm -hmm. around the globe. When the book was translated to 25 languages, I had uh, about 35 producers of films or documentaries that contacted me with interest. And so there was just a huge response from the public. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as as you noted, the the academic community um, had a very strong pushback to that because, well, for a variety of reasons. First, um, just like anyone else, uh, scientists prefer to stay in their comfort zone. So they prefer to assume that whatever they find uh, agrees with what they already know. And uh, I remember there was a talk about Oumuamua at uh, Harvard. And when I left the auditorium, a colleague of mine that worked on rocks uh, in the solar system for many years said, uh, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. (laughs) So that tells you that, uh, you know, uh, people are uh, not behaving uh, really as uh, scientists in the sense of Uh, welcoming new results because, you know, it's an opportunity to learn something new when something doesn't agree with what you expected. You should be thrilled at that rather than complain about it. But uh, the natural tendency of uh, the mainstream is to stay within the comfort zone of what we already know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's part of the response. But then uh, there is also a lot of interest from the public in this subject. And uh, there is the literature of science fiction and Um, So scientists are uh, shying away from a discussion on this uh, subject because they're worried that their image may be tainted and because some of the things said about aliens uh, are not scientifically founded. And uh, to me, that sounds uh, inappropriate because if you go back a thousand years, there were people claiming that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. And imagine if scientists would say, this is a controversial subject, there is nonsense being said about the human body, we don't want to operate um, uh, humans, and where would modern medicine be? I think it's actually the obligation of scientists to attend to subjects uh, which are not fully understood and, and clear them up and using the scientific method, especially if the public cares so much about it, uh, the public funds science and scientists should attend to the public's interests. Uh, and by the way, uh, when I uh, published my book, I said, here is an opportunity for science to attract more funds and attract more talent uh, because young people might be excited by this question. And uh, and a month ago, I announced uh, the Galileo project, and um, Uh, I should say that since the announcement, there were thousands of emails of people uh, willing to contribute from their expertise and participate in the project. And uh, I also got the funds uh, that were not allocated to science prior, uh, about $2 million so far. Mm -hmm. And uh, I basically rest my case. I mean, what I argued for uh, is realized in the Galileo project. And finally, I should say, I'm most frustrated by the fact that it's not just conservative uh, scientists that um, exist in the community. I mean, on the one hand, you you have those conservative people that argue that we need extraordinary evidence before we engage in any discussion of this type. Mm -hmm. And my my answer to that is, you know, you can think of the solar system as our mailbox and, you know, we should check our mailbox whether it has packages from far (laughs) away. especially if they look different than anything we've seen before. And uh, just saying that we need extraordinary evidence and therefore we don't want to go to the mailbox and check it, to me, it sounds like a circular argument, because if you will not invest in the search, you will never find anything extraordinary. So, um, But at the same time, in, in uh, theoretical physics, there is a whole community of people that talks about things that have no basis in any evidence, in any experiment, and like the multiverse, dimensions, uh, the string theory landscape. Mm-hmm. And that is accepted as part of the mainstream. So you ask yourself, how is it possible that you have this culture in theoretical physics that, that speculates about things we have no uh, evidence for, and that's considered mainstream, whereas on the other side, in astronomy, people have a problem with discussing evidence for something that looks different than anything we've seen before, as potentially... Uh, equipment from another civilization. After all, we exist. We know that half of the Sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So it's not a giant leap of faith or speculation to say, let's check for things like us. We send out equipment to space, let's check for equipment sent by others. Why is that such an outrageous statement? And why should there be any pushback? Uh, towards that when at the same time you allow a whole culture of theoretical physicists to talk about things we've never seen, like Mm -hmm. extra dimensions and multiverse and so forth. Mm -hmm. And my answer is that both cultures have a common thread. They avoid contact with evidence, with data. And uh, the culture that is conservative would not discuss anomalies, would basically shy away from anomalies because it wants to stay in in its comfort zone. And the other culture prefers not to be engaged in anything connected to experiments because it may prove the ideas wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, basically they have something in common, which is um, let's not pay too much attention to evidence. And I think that's a betrayal in the tradition of physics, where we learn about the world by uh, having a dialogue with nature by, by getting uh, paying attention to anomalies and trying to explain them. And by the way, there were some scientists that did pay attention to the anomalies of Oumuamua, but uh, when they tried to explain it as a natural object, they had to come up with something that we've never seen before. Like, for example, a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen, mm-hmm. that when it evaporates, the hydrogen is transparent, we can't really see it. And the problem with this idea is that the hydrogen evaporates very easily, very quickly, and such an object would not survive for more than a few million years. So it cannot really travel across large distances. And then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg. And then, uh, you know, that is chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto around another star. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that uh, is that there is just not enough nitrogen. If you take all the nitrogen that uh, there is, even then you don't have enough chips that you can produce this way. So that doesn't work either. And and then there was maybe it's a dust bunny, a collection of dust particles in a cloud that is 100 times less dense than air. Again, something we've never seen before. Uh, The problem there is that when it gets close to the sun, it will be heated and will not maintain its integrity. So my point is quite simple. If if everything you come up with, if you want to explain it as a natural object, is something we've never seen before, we should include in our vocabulary the possibility that it may be artificial in origin. And you know just we we just need better data. We need an image of the object. We need you know the next object that appears so weird if we if we find it on its approach to us, we can send a spacecraft that would take a close-up photograph and, could tell the difference between a hydrogen iceberg and nitrogen iceberg or uh, a, a piece of equipment,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know i I applaud you for coming forward with your work. and I, I think, in my opinion, I, I think more more people should do that when they notice something. and when, you know, sure, it can be inconvenient. Maybe perhaps it the science of it. I mean, quote science, maybe it's the opposite of science, what? What some of these people were doing when they were regarding this as something they don't want, even want to look at, right? But right. but as as Oumuamua entered the system, we we actually caught it uh, as it was leaving the solar system, correct?
1: Right, and the the goal would be to find another one that looks uh, like it that doesn't look like a comet or an asteroid, and and get much more data on it, and. Uh, The analogy I make usually is with uh, a caveman. If a caveman were to find a cell phone, uh, the caveman would assume that the cell phone is a rock of a new type that he had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like the astronomers are saying, this is a rock uh, of a type that we've never seen before, nitrogen iceberg, hydrogen iceberg. Mm -hmm. So the, the caveman would say, okay, it's a shiny rock that I've never seen before, but it's still a rock. (laughs) <laughs> but then uh, that's just the beginning of a learning experience because the caveman would realize that when he presses a button on this shiny rock, uh, it records his voice. And when he presses another button, it records his image. And, and then uh, it will become clear that this is not really a rock. So as long as we allow ourselves to get more evidence and learn about these objects we could find some plastic bottles among all the rocks that we we find on on the, as we walk down the beach of of the solar system. And uh, the point is to be open-minded. I'm not claiming that we know for sure that it's artificial. I'm just saying it looks weird enough and it looks similar to 2020 SO that we produced, Mm -hmm. uh, that we must uh, entertain that possibility that it's artificial in origin.
0: Yes, indeed. I agree with you. Um, you know, in your book, you talk a, a little bit about uh, the current trajectory of our planet in regards to the environment and climate change. And you suggest that we are careening towards uh, catastrophe, possibly. And, you know, wh- why do you think we are in the situation that we're in re- regarding, you know, what's going on with Earth? It it definitely feels to me that we are, you know, I uh, that we are headed towards uh a situation such as that?
1: Yeah, because uh, when we develop technologies, we are um, uh, getting to a, a reality that we've never witnessed before. So we're not experienced with the risks that it brings. Uh, one example is climate change. Um, you know, we've never been in a situation where we are, affect our environment so significantly. And Uh, Therefore, we are very late in responding to the risks that we ourselves generate by self-inflicted wounds, you know, as as a result of our technologies. And so if you ask me, I would say, you know, given uh, what is going on right now, we probably have only a few centuries left because, you know, we had uh, about a century of technological development. And uh, you can ask, what is the chance that we will survive a million years? Uh, Well, it's uh, very similar to saying, what's the chance that uh, uh, if you choose a random day in your life, it will be the first day after you were born. And the answer is one in 10,000, because uh, there are 10,000 days in the life of an adult. So if you choose a random day, most likely it will be in your life as an adult, not in your first first day as as an infant. Um, the same is true for our technological civilization. So what's the chance that we now live through the first century out of 10,000 centuries, you know, if we were to live a million years? The chance is one in 10,000. Most likely, we have only a few centuries left because we are sort of in the middle of our life, technological life. And uh, that's alarming, actually. And you can sort of see the way we behave and how we bring uh, more and more risks, you know, on the plate. And um, uh, so there is this trend of uh, us uh, getting into more, uh, you know, risky, a risky reality as a result of our technologies. But at the same time, the same technologies allow us to venture into space. And once you venture into space in a significant way, for example, by sending artificial intelligence systems or um exploring uh, other star systems at that point you know you sent a monument of your of our civilization elsewhere so not all the eggs are in one basket and if a catastrophe occurs here on earth at least something would survive that implies that we exist so there is this tension between us destroying ourselves or ba- basically uh, destroying our environment and our ability to send something away from Earth that would maintain the flame of our consciousness. Uh, and so that, you know, we will, there will still be something left behind. And uh, the question is which trend will win? I mean, will we be buried under the rubble <laughs> that we create? Or will we be able to launch something out before that happens? and you know i don't know the answer to that it really depends on the way we behave
0: mm mm-hmm. yeah it's i mean it's such a crucial thing i think uh, we are at this point right now in our society where you know we we really need to start making these choices to, towards yeah, you know look thinking about you know sustaining the population explosion the way that everything has grown on this planet and perhaps that the resources here are running out. So, you know, it seems like a natural course in the step of human evolution to colonize an- another place, another
1: world. Yeah, but I do think that if we get, uh, if we find a package in our mailbox, it could could have uh, a profound uh, uh, I- imprint on, on the way we behave because... Um, Uh, For let me give you an example, Um, you know, most um, if you look at human history, most of the time uh, you see that it's being shaped by some people trying to feel superior relative to other people. And the best example is the Second World War, where uh, the Nazi regime uh, triggered the death of 75 million people, and that was 3% of the world population in 1940. And um, just think about it, Uh, it's 20 times more deaths than uh, those triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic so far. So a group of people trying to feel superior relative to others killed 20 times more people than the virus so far, that's huge. And we keep talking about the virus for almost two years, I mean, a year and a half now. Um, So my point is, if we were to find another species or evidence for another species that is far more intelligent than we are, all of our differences will become meaningless. I mean the, the Nazi doctrine will will appeal, will not appeal to anyone because you know we are, we are all uh, equal members of the human species and there is a, a smarter kid on the block. you see so I think it will change the perspective that we have and perhaps for the better in this context. Um, And then uh, also, of course, we can learn from them. You know, we can uh, import uh, technologies that will take us a long time to develop ourselves. We can avoid um, uh, any future risks. You know, the way I, I think of this package that we could find in the mailbox is that, you know, we can always say, like many of my colleagues say, Oh, the, it's not worth the effort. There is nothing in the mailbox. Let, let business as usual. Let's let's not even go there. Uh, but then, suppose as a result of that, we miss the package. You know, it's just like find you know a love letter in the attic whose time has passed. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. if if you find it later, mm-hmm. uh, it could be a package that will provide us with a recipe for the salvation of of the human species or give us a hint as to how to behave or or inspire us in in one way or another. And if we just avoid checking our mailbox, not not even contemplating the possibility that there might be equipment flying by that we can learn from, you know, that we, we might be missing a very important strategic insight into our future. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean that's intriguing and you know something something that puzzles me is the the actual size of the universe and, and how how little i'm able to understand the actual distance between objects and how big this place is
1: um, well uh, in that in that context i just wanted to make two comments one that the uh, you know jeff bezos and richard branson uh, Uh, used their wealth recently to lift their body by one percent of the radius of the earth and they were very proud of that but uh, actually showing off in space is an oxymoron (laughs) because uh, you know just lifting your body by one percent of the earth radius is nothing to be proud of because (laughs) the observable universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the radius of the earth so it's really nothing and um, you know if if they were to develop a spacecraft that would traverse this, the, the Milky Way galaxy, I would say, okay, that's that may be something to be proud of. But just going 1% of the Earth, Earth that's nothing. And uh, just to give you another uh, example, uh, you know, the New Horizons uh, mission um, uh, that went to uh, study Pluto uh, carried uh, a, a small fraction of the ashes of Clyde tambo uh, the person who discovered Pluto and uh, that mm-hmm. was supposed to celebrate his life as a scientist but as far as i can tell it was more of an insult because what are ashes ashes are just burnt up dna you take the the genetic information of a person and you burn it up so there is nothing left mm-hmm. ashes are you know ashes of a person are no different than ashes of of uh, a cigarette, you know, it's just it contains no information. If they wanted to celebrate the life of Clyde Tambao, they should have included the genetic code mm-hmm. of that scientist uh, in electronic form. That would have made a lot of sense. Mm. And, and by the way, this was done by NASA. Uh, you mm. would think that scientists would have a better perspective, but <laughs> I think it's embarrassing because if aliens, um, some extraterrestrials find new horizon, they would say, oh, this, this culture is not very intelligent. They burnt up the information content of this person and they're trying to <laughs> celebrate the person. That makes no sense whatsoever.
0: It seems like we do a lot of things that make very little sense uh, in our society. Yeah, I
1: think that's one reason why nobody pays attention to us from outside. The, it may be one answer to Fermi's paradox. You know, where is everybody? They don't care about us. We don't look <laughs> intelligent enough.
0: Yeah, and, that's, and that leads up to you know, so, so some of the questions that I was going to ask, one of them being, you know, how, if you could, uh, there's an analogy that you give, but I'll let you give it. Uh, you know, if you could compare, how uncommon or common would you say are habitable planets throughout the the galaxy, throughout the universe? You, you you compare it to the beach, right?
1: Right. I mean, it's this is a question on which we have more information now because the Kepler satellite... Uh, uh, measured the abundance, uh, the occurrence of uh, Earth-like planets um, around the stars or or planets that are a little larger than the Earth, but, but we have a good sense uh, that about half plus or minus a quarter, you know, so a substantial fraction of all the sun-like stars have a planet roughly the size of the Earth at the same separation. So what we find in our backyard is not rare the earth sun system it's it's quite common and my point is if you arrange for similar circumstances you might as well get similar outcomes it's it's not um, you know you, you have to be really arrogant to claim that we are special and unique and there is nothing like us and of course you know that's what many People claim and they say, you know, until you provide me with extraordinary evidence, I don't want to listen to a discussion on this possibility that there might be a smarter kid on my block. And to me, it reminds of uh, my daughters when they were young. You know, they stayed at home and they compared themselves just to the family members. And they said, we are the smartest, you know, and uh, when we took them to the kindergarten, they had a psychological shock. Uh, And of course, if I were to ask them, they would say, don't take me to the kindergarten. I want to continue to think that I'm the smartest. But, you know, if we don't look through our windows and claim that we have no neighbors, that doesn't get rid of our neighbors. It's exactly the same situation as uh, the philosophers during the days of Galileo. Uh, They didn't want to look through his telescope. They argued that they know that the sun moves around the earth. The earth is at the center of the universe because that flattered their ego and uh, they put him in house arrest. And today they would have canceled him on social media. And um, the point is, it just maintained their ignorance. And, you know, reality doesn't really care how ignorant we are. We can decide to be ignorant, not to look for any evidence and just assume that what we think is the correct thing. And, you know, we could be even happy with being ignorant. Uh, But, that's not what I want as a scientist. I want to figure out which reality am I living in. So I want to look through the window. I want to figure out if I have neighbors. And um, moreover, I would like to learn from them if they are out there, you know, if they're smarter than I am. And why should we be arrogant? I mean, the, the one thing I learned from practicing astronomy throughout the decades that they did that is that every time we assumed that we are special, unique, uh, or anything around us is unusual, it, it turned out to be wrong. So let's just accept the fact that we are not fortunate to be, you know, to have these qualities, uh, but rather assume that these are very common things, that there, there are many ants like us mm-hmm. on the sidewalk of the Milky Way galaxy, like, mm-hmm. or there were in the past. And, you know, and that's one reason why nobody pa- pays attention to us. But and what we, our duty is to look for others.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Fermi paradox is definitely, you know, something to look at. And I, I think I think what you're saying, you know, it, it's it's resounding. It makes a lot of sense. And I think it was even Einstein that said the quote, uh, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. <laughs> so... So, you know, it's true. It it seems that we are limited by our own ability to look at what's in front of us, our willingness to look at what's in front of yeah, us. Yeah,
1: but, but uh, what really bothers me is that we are, you know, for example, for four decades, we have been searching for the dark matter. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. And, of course, it's an interesting question, and we would like to know what particles make up most of the matter in the universe. We don't know what they are. So for four decades, we were searching in the dark, that was part of the mainstream of science. And it, you know it deserves to be mainstream. I don't have a problem with that, but we should admit that we have searched for four decades. We haven't found anything and hundreds of millions of dollars were invested in that search. So at the same time, zero dollars were invested in the search for technological equipment of other civilizations. I mean, we've been searching for radio waves That's Mm -hmm. called SETI. Mm -hmm. But that's just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be active when you're looking at it. And uh, it's possible that most of the civilizations that predated us are not around anymore. They don't send radio signals. Why would they be exactly the same uh, development phase as we are? And, you know, so most of the time when you look out for radio signals, you won't see anything. But you could still find relics that they left behind, those pieces of equipment that they launched into space. And if they had enough time, you know, a billion years or so, they could have populated the entire Milky Way galaxy by self-replicating uh, artificial intelligence systems. So, so, in order to find out if we live in such a reality, you know, we should check. And, and there, there was zero funding for such a search for equipment uh, until I established the Galileo project in July. and. Um, and, and that was a result of a few uh, multi-billionaires visiting the porch of my home and uh, having a great interest in my book, asking me questions. And um, eventually they, they decided to provide me with uh, around $2 million uh, to, to, that enabled me to establish this, this Galileo project. And we called it Galileo because we prefer to look for the answers through our telescopes, not by philosophical reasoning. And that's not so complicated. You know, that's something that every kid can understand that, you know, if you want to learn more, you have to look, you have yeah. to search. You can't just say, I don't have any evidence." You know, I don't have neighbors because nobody's knocking on my door right now. Well, guess what? Most of the time, nobody's knocking on your door. And suppose the previous knock was a million years ago. There was nobody to listen to it. So, and and the you know the distances across the Milky Way galaxy are so vast that who knows when the previous visit took place, or or maybe there 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 are visitors that are just too small. Uh, we haven't noticed them. Or, you know we need we need to check what is around us and only then argue, you know if we spend four decades, just like we spent four decades in the search for, Uh, dark matter, if we do an experimental search for equipment in space, I'm not talking about radio signals. People will tell you, oh, yeah, we've been searching for 70 years. Uh, Yeah, but it was something completely different. I'm saying not radio signals, not lasers. Search for equipment, objects in space. We, We never did that. And, you know, if we had been searching for, for four decades and investing hundreds of millions of dollars in that search, like the dark matter has, has had done, mm-hmm. then you could say, okay, you know, uh, should we continue or not? But even in the context of dark matter, the mainstream does not say, let's stop it. The, the people are still very enthusiastic about continuing those searches. So I'm saying, you know, we should at least invest the same amount of money because dark matter has very little impact on the daily lives of people, you know, but Mm. if we find one object that came from another civilization, it would have a huge impact on the future of humanity. So how dare we shy away from that opportunity to do archaeology in space and search for objects sent by others uh, into the solar system?
0: I think it's our duty. It's part of what we should be doing, right? I mean, Dr. Lobo, I want to I wanted to ask you about this specifically there. There, there were some articles that were released, this footage that the Pentagon released on uh, this, this footage that the Navy soldiers were recording of these crafts doing these amazing feats, like beyond, beyond what our technology was capable of, or is capable of. And when they released them, you know, even CNN was covering it as, you know, this is, quote, UFO footage released and confirmed by the Pentagon. Are you aware of this story?
1: Of course, that's uh, one reason that I established the Galileo project, because it, it was, uh, we, we did it a month after the report from the intelligence agencies were was uh, delivered to Congress. And um, it's clear that most of the data is classified, that we don't see it, we just see the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and people that had access to the classified data are quite serious people. You know, There are former CIA directors, uh, Brennan and Woolsey, uh, former President Barack Obama, and they all speak about it as a serious matter. You know, that includes also the head of NASA, the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, who said that when he was a senator, he saw the classified data and it does look unusual to him and he thinks that scientists should look into that. So that's exactly the reason why I established the Galileo Project, and it has two components. One is to look at unidentified aerial phenomena of the type that appeared in the Pentagon report to Congress, mm-hmm. and the second is to look for objects uh, similar to Oumuamua that are much farther away. And in both cases, the idea is to get a high-resolution image and monitor, get as much data as possible on the motion of these objects so that we can get a better sense of their nature, and you know, with big enough telescopes in the context of UAP, these unidentified error phenomena, with mm-hmm. big enough telescope, you can get a megapixel image of a UAP and, and see uh, whether, uh, you know, read off the label made on exoplanet X, if, if it indeed it came mm-hmm. from another place. Uh, you can easily distinguish between a bird, a drone, an airplane, and an unusual object. Uh, and... Uh, in the context of Oumuamua-like objects, uh, what you need is to send a spacecraft that will come sufficiently close to it so that it can get such a high-resolution image. But in both cases, uh, with good enough data, we should be able to figure out what these objects are. And, you know, it's like a fishing expedition. And if we end up catching only sardines, those fish that are common and have mundane explanations, so be it. Uh, But it's sufficient to have one a uh, fish that looks unusual for it to have a profound impact on our future.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so curious because the the footage that the Pentagon released, it was done almost in the middle of the pandemic, during the pandemic. So it, it kind of went, you know, under the radar, so to speak, mind the pun. Um, and, it you know, it, it, it didn't seem to get picked up very much by just ordinary people that perhaps, you know, we're this is a form of disclosure that's happening. And, you know, my question to you is, if, if you could theorize what uh, first contact would look like, and what what do you think? How do you think it would work out um, between you know? How would aliens contact us if they wanted to?
1: Yeah, I think most likely, if we had the real contact with the physical thing, that it would be a piece of equipment that has artificial intelligence. That um, because there is no. Uh, reason to send a living creature ac- across uh, the vast distances that separate stars. You know, the, we were selected by Darwinian evolution to live on the surface of Earth. We, we are not designed to survive through interstellar travel, despite what you've seen in science fiction movies. But the technological equipment can do it for a billion years. And uh, so if we were to design a, a mission, I would uh, put the artificial intelligence. These are systems we are now... Uh, using to drive cars in the future will make uh, decisions and will will outsmart us. Uh, so you can think of them as our technological kids uh, that we can be very proud of. We can educate them early on, just like through machine, machine learning, just like we educate our kids, and then send them into the world. In this case, the Milky Way Galaxy. And they will be autonomous. Uh, you know, the distances are so great that we shouldn't uh, require them to get guidelines from us because it takes a long time to communicate. So they will be completely autonomous, but they would follow our guiding principles, just like kids that you educate early on. And uh, that's what I imagine also other civilizations uh, sending. And uh, by now, you know, there may be equipment of this uh, nature around us. So if we had the contact, I would think that it would be with an intelligent uh, piece of equipment. Now. Trying to figure out its intent would not be trivial because um, it could could outsmart us and we might need to use our own AI systems to interpret their AI systems. Uh, Mm. It's sort of like relying on our kids to interpret content that we find in the internet because they are more computer savvy. Uh, And so um, this would be a challenge, figuring out their intent. But the first thing we should do is Uh, collect uh, as much uh, information as possible about uh, how they behave and how they respond to what we do if we find them. Uh, So that's the way I envision it. Now, it's quite possible that even if we collect data in the Galileo project that shows to us beyond a reasonable doubt that we're talking about some technological equipment that we did not produce. Uh, it's possible that there would be still a lot of people that would not believe it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But my point about is that, um, you know, uh, as long as we know that we describe reality, because we collected the data in the scientific way, I don't think we should worry too much about convincing everyone. Because uh, when Albert Einstein came up with his general theory of relativity, you know, there were only a handful of people around the world that could understand it. And could follow the reasoning behind it. And a century later, this uh, theory is essential for uh, GPS uh, systems for navigation. And everyone is using those GPS systems in their cell phones mm-hmm. uh, without really understanding or agreeing with the way that generativity was derived. And uh, the same is true for people that expose their arm to the mRNA vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of us did that and uh, uh, without really understanding uh, the, how it works or, or, or agreeing with uh, uh, all the steps that led to its development. And so my point is, if reality is on your side, you don't need a consensus. You don't need to get a lot of likes on Twitter because eventually our future will be shaped by that reality. And, you know, when Galileo said the earth moves around the sun and the philosopher said, no, no, no. And, the, you know, the, the church said, no. You know, if you see now, I mean, now we are sending uh, space missions uh, that use the fact that the Earth moves around the sun and there is no doubt about it. And the fact that uh, his ideas were not popular at the time do not really matter. As long as he was on the the side of reality, eventually reality comes to haunt you. I mean, uh, there is no doubt that it shapes your future. So if there is equipment flying by and people don't believe it, you know, who cares, really? It's not decided by how many likes this idea gets on Twitter. <laughs> uh, if, those, if this equipment flies out, it will affect our future one way or another.
0: I love that. I love that. I mean, who, who cares, really? And it, it ends up coming up either way, you know, through time. Time is the true test of, of how valid something is, in my opinion. So, you know, I, it, it's very curious that eventually you're going to have to face the truth, whether you like it
1: or not exactly and I mean we know it from our life right so we can pretend uh, that we uh, are not sick and uh, if we are sick we are sick that's it you know that that's a fact uh, so uh, whether we like it or not reality is whatever it is and we uh, we eventually adapt to it but but uh, our response to the idea that describes reality is really irrelevant
0: mm-hmm. so dr dr love we've got about you know, ten minutes or so left, and I, you know, I know you're you're a professor, and you know, you teach a lot, and I think this something you ask your students to do is these sort sort of thought experiments, right? So, you know, if there's anything that you can say to the people listening about, you know, maybe maintaining an open mind or having the curiosity to explore and discover, I mean, how how would you relate that?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, the most important. Uh... Uh, perspective that you should have is is being modest because, um, you know, we were wrong so many times when we pretended that we are special or unique. So if you're starting, you know, it took me some time to, to adapt this point of view, but that's the biggest lesson I, I learned from practicing astronomy. You know, you just recognize that, you know, there are so many planets uh, like Earth in the observable volume of the universe, more than the number of grains of sand on all beaches on Earth. So how can you be proud of even conquering a small piece of land? You know, if you buy a house, you have a small piece of land. Uh, it's such a small thing relative, Well, first of all, the size of the earth, but the, the earth itself is one grain out of uh, so many on the landscape of a huge beach, you know? So, so th- th- this sense of modesty is really, is really fundamental. And as, as, as soon as you adapt it, it, it you know then you are willing to learn right so because you're not attached to yourself as much you're willing to listen to nature it's a dialogue with nature so science is a dialogue with nature we look at the evidence if it doesn't agree with what we thought it should represent, we should be happy because it teaches us something new. We should not complain and say, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. You know, that we should never say. We should say, Oumuamua is so weird, let's figure out what it is. You know, we should be excited about it. Uh, and that is true to anything in life. You know, when when something doesn't agree with what we thought, it's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to learn something new. So we should always be uh, have the the uh, mindset of a kid. You know, I didn't change much since my childhood. Uh, people that knew me back then would say that I'm the same person. You know, I refuse to uh, pretend that I know much more. Uh, you know, one of the things that was very traumatic to me as a kid, I would go to dinners and ask a question, and the adults in the room would, uh, in the best case, they would be, uh, pretend that they know much more when they answered the question. Uh, much more than they actually know. It was obvious to me that they are pretending to know more than they know. Hmm. Uh, But this was the good situation. In in the worst situation, they would actually dismiss the question. They would say, oh, this is unimportant and move on Mm -hmm. because they would like to not to demonstrate that they, they are ignorant about the answer to this question. And, uh, you know, I hated that. I and, and I became a scientist partly because I thought, okay, science gives me the privilege of maintaining my childhood curiosity. I can ask questions. I don't need to pretend anything. I can just figure it out. It's a learning experience by looking at the, the evidence. You know, I can learn more. But uh, to my surprise, <laughs> even after getting tenure at Harvard University and um, you know, and, and, and look, uh, being surrounded by people in academia that have tenure, you know, that, that have job security, I'm still facing a very similar situation to those dinners as a kid, where a lot of my colleagues pretend that they know much more than they actually know, and they dismiss a question when they are not comfortable with it, like, uh, you know, is Oumuamua an artificial object? They don't want to discuss it. Hmm
0: i mean it's it's a really strange phenomena dr loeb and you know i i think I think it's important what you said that you know to to maintain a sort of humbleness you know within ourselves that we are perhaps not that important, not that intriguing, not intriguing enough for these advanced civilizations to come and reach out to us because there there are probably other planets inhabited with beings just like us at similar stages and and you know on Star Trek. The, the idea with Star Trek is first contact is established when the, the civilization reaches like warp drive uh, capacity, right the, the capability to go into warp speed, right? So mm-hmm. maybe maybe we are at a point like that where you know they're waiting for us to make some sort of discovery or realization, and and then maybe they'll step forward.
1: Yeah, that's possible that uh, we haven't yet demonstrated that we are intelligent enough for them to pay attention to us. Right. Uh but um, yeah, and and of course um, one thing to keep in mind is that um, you know we are born into this world like uh, actors put on a stage and uh, we tend to think that the play is about us and and that's really r- wrong because uh, we now know that the universe is 10 to the power 26 times bigger than the size of our body. We are clearly not at the center of the stage and the play has been going on for 13.8 billion years Mm -hmm. and we just came at the end of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's the time that elapsed since the big bang. So the play is clearly not about us. Forget about the idea that we are central actors. And the only way for us to find more about what the play means is perhaps to look for other actors. And that's what I'm advocating. Just be humble. It's not about us. You know, the, why should we always think that it's about us? That we are at the center, we started by thinking we are at the center of the universe. Then we realized, oh no, we are not. But it took us a while, you know, the, the philosophers had to put Galileo in house arrest because they said, no, we are at the center. Don't, we don't want to look through a telescope. And eventually it became clear that we are, you know, we're not at the center and we are moving around the sun and so forth. And uh, so we gave up on that, but nevertheless, we are still, uh, you know, most people firmly believe that uh, we are unique as intelligent uh, beings, that, you know, we are uh, the pinnacle of creation, that we, there is nothing like us and we are the smartest that you can imagine. And, uh, my my point is, you know, be, uh, keep your perspective because uh, previously, whenever you thought that we are unique and special, it, it turned out to be wrong. And, and now we also know that the Earth-Sun system is not special. So hmm. the next, I mean, the next obvious revolution, Copernican revolution, would be uh, for us to recognize that we are not the smartest kid on the, on the cosmic block.
0: For sure. I mean, perhaps perhaps you know instead of being a snowflake maybe you're just a piece of you know dirt piece of sand
1: i would say more uh, yeah more like an ant on a sidewalk there are many ants that existed before and will exist in the future and we're nothing special and that's why you know space is vast nobody pays attention to us there may be things flying by we don't pay attention to them uh people on twitter ridicule the, the suggestion that Uh, some of these objects might be of artificial origin and and we keep ignoring them so you know in retrospect it will turn out to be a very foolish uh, attitude but uh, for the time being you know just like when we thought that the sun moves around the earth now every kid will tell you no that doesn't make much sense but back then everyone thought it's the case so um, uh, it looks like we haven't learned much that we keep uh, you know, we keep insisting on on prejudice rather than uh, checking the evidence.
0: For sure, Doctor Lo. But you know, it. I am. I'm, I'm really curious about one last thing. One last question. You know, you've you've been a scientist for a, a long time now. You know, your whole adult life. So, um, is there something that has left you completely perplexed, or something that you felt, you know, huh? You know, it, something that shocked you?
1: Yeah. What uh, still shocks me is that. You know, we discovered most of the laws of physics in laboratory experiments uh, here on Earth. And um, then it turns out that they apply to the universe at large. And most physicists, most scientists would tell you, oh, of course, you know, if you find a law locally, then it must apply everywhere. But um, it's not at all as simple as that, because, you know, we decide about laws in society and uh, a lot of people do not obey them. So. Uh, you know why aren't the laws of physics different in different places in the observable universe why do we see you know that reality is uh, controlled everywhere by the same laws of physics and the point is that you know we we, we don't only know that we know that to a very high precision uh, that even in the early universe the same laws of physics applied we can trace the evolution of the universe from the early beginning until now and it's to me it's remarkable that reality is so organized into a set of laws and i don't take it for granted for me it's uh, you know it leaves a, a very deep impression on uh, i i'm at oh uh, with respect to how organized the universe is <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, Dr. Loeb, that's our time. I I just wanted to take a moment to say, you know, thank you for your work. It. I remember when the Oumuamua story broke, and I was just intrigued. And you know, I I consider myself an amateur astronomer. I've I've got a couple telescopes, and you know, so I I do. I there is a natural innate curiosity for me. Uh, personally so to to i'm glad that you were you had the courage to step forward even though you know you, you were being faced against potential ridicule and you know stuff like that
1: yeah i mean when i was young at age 18 when i went to the military i i served in the paratroopers in the first few months and one of the saying there was that sometimes a soldier has to put his body on the barbed wire so that the uh, other soldiers will be able to to pass through and uh, I feel the same way that you know, even though it, it's painful sometimes for me to see what is being said on social media about uh, my work, um, I feel that I'm serving a bigger purpose of allowing the younger generation to talk about this subject in the future more openly.
0: Hundred percent. I I think so. I think it's I think it's working. I think more. I mean, conversations like this one are happening more and more because of your work. So. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Loeb. I truly appreciate it. Um, I know you're a very popular guy. Is there is there anything else that you're? Is there a new book in the works that you're, you're working on?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm just starting my next uh, book, so it will probably take a year before I I, I I can tell you exactly what it its content is. But uh, um, okay. but uh, you know, um, cre- creating new new material is. Uh, uh, the thing that keeps me happy when I wake up in the morning uh, so every day is a new day for me. Uh, I jog at 5 am and in the company of ducks, uh, birds, uh, rap, uh, bunnies and wild turkeys and wolves and uh, and uh, the sunrise is very different every day so uh, you know I, I see that as a metaphor that uh, every day you learn something new.
0: For sure, for sure. guys that's the show what an incredible broadcast again the book is called extraterrestrial by my guest dr ab loeb that's l-o-e-b loeb and we will we will put a link in the show notes for that one if you made it all the way through to the end thank you so much for listening and being here we are certainly going to be bringing more guests of this caliber on for you guys. And a big thanks to Dr. Loeb for making the time to be on the show. Thank you so much for listening. Good night.